Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 3, Episode G, Side by Side. If you want to get to know somebody, eat with them. Somebody told me that when I was young, and somehow it stuck in my head. I'm glad it did, because it's good advice. I find that when people eat together, they relax. They sort of let out a lot more of themselves. And you get to feeling that you only really know someone when you break bread with them and sit down. Old, familiar wisdom, I suppose, but that's the best sort. In fact, I wish they'd do this on cable news. I wish they'd have some sort of current affairs programme and just get all of the politicians and all the activists to sit down and eat together. And then the mask would slip off just a little bit and you'd see more of what these people are really like. And they might even end up listening to one another too. But this episode isn't about getting to know politicos. It's about getting to know ancient Indians. So when one of our listeners, Amit, wrote in to suggest that we do a special episode on food, that seemed to me like a really great idea. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing this episode. We're going to be the, looking at the food that everyday folk and kings ate during the Gupta era. Quite a lot of our information about that food comes from medical books, but we're not going to be covering medical diets specifically. So, although some food we're talking about has modern counterparts in Ayurvedic medicine, the food we're talking about will be slightly different simply because it's the everyday version and it's not strictly governed by the doctors. Here's the plan then. First, we're going to go shopping for ingredients, in a podcasty sort of way, in an ancient Indian market. Then we're going to prepare a meal. Then we're going to sit down and eat it. We might take a cheeky trip back into town and grab a drink, ancient Indian style, at the end. By the way, I'll try to use the English names for ingredients. But if I slip into using, say, haldi instead of turmeric, or long instead of cloves, apologies in advance. I suppose I should really be using the Sanskrit names. And surprisingly, these are often different to the modern Hindi names, quite radically different sometimes. So almost no one would know what I was talking about. Which, come to think of it, is probably what's happening exactly now. So let's ignore all of that stuff and set out on our culinary adventure. If we go down to the ancient Indian market today, we're in for a little bit of a surprise. Some of the ingredients that we associate most closely with Indian food aren't anywhere to be found. There's no chilli, for example. No chilli of any sort whatsoever. And that's for the very good reason that all the chilli is still in the New World. It's still dangling about somewhere in South America. Chilli, in fact... It's a pretty recent addition to Indian food, comparatively. There's no aloo either, there's no potato. And that's for the same reason. It's not yet been discovered by anyone on this side of the Pacific Ocean. There are other surprises too, though. There's no onion. Onion just doesn't feature in ancient Indian food. And that's because ancient Indians thought that onion was, was dangerous. They thought that eating onion would badly damage your eyesight, it would make your body weak. And that makes a sort of sense, actually. I mean, onion stings your eyes when it's outside of your body. Just imagine the havoc it would cause when you swallow it and it's inside. So no onion, no chilli, no aloo, no garlic either. 
at least not in normal ancient Indian food. You might find the odd clove of garlic somewhere around this market, because garlic appears in medical treatments, but it just doesn't appear in everyday regular food. In fact, there's even a recipe in one of the medical texts telling you how to get garlic into someone who refuses to eat it. So here's your garlic without garlic recipe. You will need a cow, a pan, garlic, and grass. Take your cow, starve it for three days, and then feed the cow garlic and grass. And because it's hungry, it's going to eat the garlic properly. Leave the cow a day or so, and then milk the cow into the pan. And voila, we have garlic milk without any garlic content. Anyway, garlic, ginger, onion, chilli, those are the four ingredients that people most closely associate with standard North Indian food. And well, outside of medicinal food, three of those four aren't there. Even ginger, which was used in the ancient Indian world, seems to be taken almost entirely in dried powder form and not used fresh or as a root as it, as it is today. In fact, ancient Indian food is starting to sound a lot more like traditional Jain food. Nevertheless, there's loads of stuff in this ancient Indian market for us to go and try out. So let's get going. Let's go and check out some vegetables first. Here we've got some radish, some cucumber, We've got bottle gourd, pumpkin gourd, brinjal, that's um, eggplant or aubergine. There are a bunch of things which we're really familiar with today here. Pretty much most of the vegetables currently in use that weren't from the new world. And there are a few things at the ancient vegetable store that you don't see much today. Things like lotus fibres. Let's pick up some radish and some cucumber for our meal later and leave the rest of the vegetables where they are for now. So we're over at the stalls selling cereals, and we're going to top up on our carbohydrates. By the way, top up on your carbohydrates, not something any ancient Indian said. Ancient Indian books seem to love categorising things, and food's no exception. Actually, the ancient Indian categorizations of food are less kind of difficult than the categorizations of other things. Some of them are pretty simple. So there's a categorization which splits things into sweet food, salty food, liquid food, and condiments. That seems pretty straightforward. There are more complex categorizations of food, some of them in the medical texts where we have really nuanced classifications that cross-cut, but none of the categories of food are carbohydrates. Nonetheless, there are staple foods in the modern sense. There's wheat. The word for wheat doesn't appear in the Rig Veda, the oldest of all the ancient Brahminical texts. And there's some evidence, therefore, that wheat was not widely used back then. That it was a sort of new thing, it was a little bit exotic. We know it was used from the historic period onwards, uh, because we can find it in the archaeology and also it's mentioned. Wheat, in fact, seems to have been the main staple in northwest India. The doctors, though, don't seem to think it's very good for you. There's a just a slight hint that it's still considered a little bit exotic and foreign and odd in ancient India. None of that seems to have stopped the, the Gandharans from guzzling it all down. They used it for porridge, uh, they, they got parched wheat grains and they used those, they made cakes, they had flour which they made into patties, and they made those into sweets and savoury dishes. Actually what you won't find 
in the ancient Indian world is many wheat breads, I mean, flat wheat roti breads, like you'll find around India today. Ancient Indians just didn't seem to use wheat bread much at all. In fact, there's a debate whether they even knew how to make them. Some people think that flatbreads only came along later. Oh, over here we've got the rice stalls. I absolutely love rice. If I was forced to live on only one thing, it would definitely be rice. And there's a huge variety of rice at your local ancient Indian market. To get a grip on this, first, there's a distinction between three major kinds of rice. There's shashtika rice. Shashtika rice is rice that is ripened in the summer. It grows quickly. In fact, it only takes 60 days to, to ripen up. Shashtika, we're getting 60. Then there's vrihi rice. Vrihi rice, maybe because it grows so quickly, it's not considered the very best of rices. But then we have vrihi rice. Vrihi rice ripens in the autumn. Actually, vrihi was sometimes used just to mean rice in general in the ancient Indian world. But it specifically means this, this rice that ripens in the autumn. And this seems to have been the most common, readily available form of rice. The sort of rice that day-to-day -day folk would eat day-to-day. -day. Finally, there's shala rice. Shala rice is the rice which ripens in winter. It was first of all grown in little small seed beds until the sprout kind of got up and got stable, and then it was transplanted into the wet field, much like most modern rices today. That extra labour meant that the grains were bigger, and in fact it was considered the best sort of rice by the ancient Indians. So alongside the summer rice, the autumn rice and the winter rice, there's also the wild rice. That's considered by sacred by the ancient Indians, uh, and they used it occasionally in day-to-day -day dishes too, it seems. Now, within each of those three major categories, ignoring wild rice for now, there are loads of different varieties. There are loads of different shallow rices, for example. And there are actually 39 varieties, according to one count. But even that count leads off loads of varieties of shallow rice that we know about. Ancient Indians may have had their particular favourites of what sort of rice they wanted. Let's have a look for ours. And because I'm in a posh mood, let's have a look at the very best quality rice, the shala rice. There's red shala rice. That's been around absolutely forever, it seems. It appears even in the oldest texts. And then over here we've got this rice that's chundan shala rice. It smells like sandalwood. That's grown in the Sundarbans, the, the broad delta where a bunch of great rivers, including the Ganga, meet the sea. Bangladesh and West Bengal in the modern era. Perhaps the finest rice of all, though, was called Kalamashalo. That's black rice, and it grew in Bengal. A similar sort of rice was used at that great monastery university that we visited in the last episode. The master of one of the monasteries there took Mashalo rice. Mashala rice was rice that was grown only in Magda, so it was a local rice. The region that Nalanda was in was, uh, this great monastery this university was in, was, was Magda. And Mashala rice was a beautiful thing. Each grain was black and scented, and it was as big as a black bean, and it shone. 
the rice was pretty widely liked. In fact, it became so famous that it was even mentioned in the great ancient Indian grammar book. And if it's mentioned in an ancient Indian grammar book, it's probably going to be really good because we all know that grammar books are the way you get your best rice recommendations from. Red Charlie rice, that seems to have been the one that was favourite of the doctors. They recommend it as the most medically sound. So I think we should leave it well enough alone. Well, okay, fine, I suppose we'll have to have eat something healthy in this meal. Let's pick up some red rice and some of that glossy black rice too. Ancient Indians sometimes mix together different rices and in fact different grains. Just before we leave this part of the market, we can take a quick peek at the other cereals on sale here. There's some familiar stuff. There's foxtail millet. There's broomtail millet. There's lots and lots of barley. Barley, in fact, was maybe more common than it is in India today. It was considered much less exotic than wheat. It had been grown in ancient India since well before history began, since well before wheat was a big thing. It was even a staple in the Rig Veda, that oldest text we mentioned before. And we had wild barley and loads of different varieties of domesticated barley. Alongside those things are some pulses. Some of them we think of as naturally Indian, but they could actually be the result of trade and conversation with the world beyond. They could actually be new to ancient India. Chickpeas, for example. Chana, we think of that as kind of distinctly Indian, I suppose. Allegedly, Chana was first brought to ancient India from Egypt by Alexander the Great when he came here. I'm a little bit sceptical about that one. More likely, it was brought here by Greeks when they ruled parts of northwest India. And at first, Chana was used more as horse feed than human feed. Pretty soon, though, it became mainstream. There are plenty of less exotic pulses around too. There are peas and cow peas and mung beans and lentils and black gram and green gram. Uh, green gram is better than black gram, according to the ancient Indians, by the way. All the top foodie tips on the ancient Indian podcast. Just before we push past on our way to the meat stalls, Let's just take a moment to have a look at what must have been one of the most beautiful stalls in the market. The flower stall. Flowers were eaten an awful lot in ancient Indian food, much more than today, I would guess. For example, there's the white angel flower. It's this delicate white flower that looks like a starburst. The, the petals separate from one another, but they're quite regular. It was grown over on the coast in, in eastern India, the coast of Kalinga, and people made it into a gruel, mostly for medical purposes. White angel gruel. It's an odd sort of name, a sort of mixture of appetising and absolutely disgusting. No one wants to eat gruel. I wonder what it tasted like. Let's pick up some culinary flowers and get on our way to the meat market. So we're at the ancient meat stalls. Actually, these might not have been part of the major market. They might have been in another place, maybe even outside the city walls altogether. That's because, well, 
meat market. There's something slightly polluted about it, slightly something impure about it. More on that later. But for now, let's take a look at what meat's on offer. We've got quite a few varieties of fish here. We've got goat meat. We've got deer and gazelles of various sorts. We've got hares, partridges, hedgehog, porcupines, tortoises. Your usual selection of meats. Peacocks too. Peacocks were a great delicacy in central northern India. I suppose they taste a bit like pheasant, only fancier, brighter maybe. Partridge was also a favourite of quite a few people ringing around that central area in northern India. There are plenty of meats though that you're just not going to be able to find in your ancient Indian market. If you want some elephant meat, you're out of luck. Nothing there. If you want some horse meat, nothing there either. And you won't find the meat of oxen, pigs, lions, foxes, frogs, bears or monkeys. All of those sorts of meats are considered well out of bounds. There's famously a big controversy nowadays about whether beef would be available at that ancient Indian market. It's very charged, it's very uh, political, a lot of people's identities are wrapped up with it too, more than political religious, I suppose. I think most academic historians in India would agree on this. Bull meat was eaten during the early sacrifices, and the meat of cows who were infertile was sometimes used although it does seem to have been a very serious crime quite early on to kill a cow. Whether beef was used widely, that's a controversy for another podcast. Meat eating is complicated nowadays. In uh, modern India, about 30% of people are vegetarians. For some people in India then, it's a moral requirement to be a vegetarian. For other people in India, it's slightly quirky. And it was a similar picture back in Gupta, India. On the one hand, eating meat had always been a pretty common thing, maybe even slightly encouraged and recommended since time immemorial. Recommended especially if you're a Kshatriya, one of the warrior vana, one of the warrior caste. Actually, it seems to have been pretty widely eaten by all the other castes too. But since that really early time, there'd been a change in ideas. Just before this podcast started, just before series one, there was a flourishing of new religious ideas, and those tended to increasingly put pressure, pushing people away from eating meat. This is most obvious in the case of really strict sects like the Jains. From ancient times, Jainism hasn't allowed the eating of meat at all. And in fact, there are even uh, stricter requirements uh, you have to make sure that you're not going to eat putrid food, for example, because there might be little uh, microbes growing in there. Well, not microbes, but little small creatures growing in there. So you mustn't even eat that because you might be in danger of eating something a bit like meat. Other strict sects were formed around that time, but actually they allowed meat eating. The Ajavikas, for example, they ate meat, according to their opponents at least. And then, most famously, there were the early Buddhists. The early Buddhists ate meat too, though there were strict rules about eating meat. It couldn't be you had a monk that went out and killed its own goat and ate it. The monk could receive meat as a gift when he went round with his begging bowl, but he must receive it in an utterly blameless way. There was a threefold test. The killing of the animal must be not seen by the monk, not heard by the monk, 
and not even suspected by the monk. Now, there's some debate about what the Buddha himself actually thought about eating meat. The so-called lesser vehicles, the Hinayana forms of Buddhism that survive today, they tend to allow eating of meat. Plausibly, they are tied more directly to some of those ancient Indian forms of Buddhism we were talking about just now. The greater vehicle forms of Buddhism, the Mahayana forms of Buddhism, they tend to ban meat-eating entirely. My understanding is that these two groups sometimes say different things about what the Buddha originally said. Even outside these three new sects, though, in mainstream Brahminical thought, there was a move against meat-eating. The sacrificial animal, the centerpiece of the sacrifice, that was typically eaten afterwards. But increasingly, during the time of the Buddha and Mahavira, when Jainism and Buddhism were just getting up and getting really popular, in mainstream Brahminical tradition, it was increasingly popular to replace the animal by a doe model. So prohibitions against the killing of animals were becoming increasingly popular there too. It was a move that seemed to cover all the different religious views. In fact, vegetarianism became so widespread that during the Gupta era, when an ancient Chinese monk came through India, he said, all of these Indians, they're all vegetarians. Or at least that's what he told his compatriots when he got back home. As all historians seem to agree, that Chinese monk was wrong. He went too far. The claim that all Indians were vegetarians just doesn't match up with the archaeology, just doesn't match up with the texts. The monk was a Mahayana Buddhist, one of the greater vehicle Buddhists, the more vegetarian sort. And presumably, he just made a mistake because he spent too much time with like-minded people, people who are vegetarians like him, to get a real sense of what day-to-day Indians were doing. So, in reality, there was a fair amount of meat-eating still going on. It might have been thought in some parts of society as a dodgy practice, eating meat, or maybe even cruel, but other parts of society treated it as normal and they carried on doing it happily. Which, in fact, is pretty much the same situation that we have today. The ancient world being as complex and as varied as the modern world, no great surprise there, really. I'm afraid that I'm a meat eater myself, so I'm just going to pick up some venison, some deer meat. That's listed as one of Sita's favourites. Sita's the main female character in the the great epic Ramayana. And it's a favourite of mine too. Right, we've got all the food we need. Let's head back home to start cooking. We're headed to the kitchen. Now, a kitchen is an important part of any home, and in your typical ancient Indian home, it's got to be kept ritually important and also clean and pure. It's kept ritually important by placing it near the shrine of the house, and it's kept clean and pure partly uh, by keeping out of the way of any guests, can be tucked in the way in the corner there, and partly because we have to go through certain rituals when we step into the kitchen. We're going to have to wash our feet and our hands. We're going to have to take off those grubby clothes we used down the market and put on freshly laundered clothes. We step into the kitchen. It's clean. It's well lit. And there are a bunch of different utensils. 
Now, if we were ancient Indians in the Gupta area who were super rich, then all those pots and pans would be gleaming gold. On the other hand, if we were ancient Indians in the Gupta era who were quite poor, then we wouldn't have any pots and pans to speak of at all. What we'd have instead would be leaves stitched together, sewn together. And where leaves would burn, we'd have broken shards of pottery that we'd found. I suppose we're not going to be super poor since we bought all of that expensive stuff. We even bought some meat after all. We're going to be somewhere in between the super rich and the super poor. And so our pans are going to be made of metal. Not gold, nothing so fancy, something a bit lower down. And also we're going to have the occasional bit of stone and pottery amongst our utensils. And there are a whole variety of different types of utensils. I mean, just the number of different names for pans in ancient India is quite mind-boggling. There are pans for boiling. There are starly pans, all-purpose earthenware pans with a neck. That became the modern tali, probably. There are pans with indents to help you shape cakes. Uh, those are a bit like modern cupcake trays. There are pans for frying. Yes, frying. There's this odd idea that makes the rounds that frying only came to India with the first Muslim invaders, the first Muslim rulers. That's nonsense. In fact, there are tons of recipes in ancient India where things are fried. Meat, vegetables, cereal, corn, sweets, the whole lot. Frying seems to have been one of the main, maybe even the principal form of cooking in ancient India. Actually, there are other inventions often thought to only come with Islam that are there in ancient India. There are kebabs, for example. Roasting carved meat on a skewer is another of the most common methods of cooking meat. And there are recipes which talk about basting it constantly with ghee. Mm. Alongside the pans, there are more sophisticated cooking utensils too. There are the utensils that provide the actual heat. There are hot tiles, which you're going to place on coals. And there is a use for a bunch of things, including fumigating food. So what would happen is you put the food on the hot tile, and you'd also put some ghee with some camphor or some other scented spice. You'd cover the whole thing over, you'd let the smell really get into that food. Probably the fanciest bit of equipment in the kitchen, though, that's the grill. We've got a metal base that's placed on top of coals, and you've got a metal top that's got coals on top of it. So we have effectively two hot plates, and food's kind of wedged in between there to cook. There's no steamer in the ancient Indian kitchen. There's no steaming to speak of in the proper sense. I mean, there's the boiling meat or vegetables in a covered pot. And that's effectively steaming in a sense because you're letting things cook in their own steam. There's palau too. Uh, rice and vegetables, sometimes with meat or fruit, cooked in a pot with a lid and effectively steamed in that way. Nowadays, we often seal the lid of the pot with clay, but that seems to have been a later invention. That really was something that only came with Islam. The word palau, though, that's used in ancient Indian times and used in pretty much the same sense as it is today. There are a bunch of other utensils to tanned here in the kitchen. There are bamboo protectors to keep flies off our food. There's a flat grinding stone and much more besides. Pretty much everything we're going to need. All we have to decide is what we're going to cook. What should we cook? Well, it partly depends on where we are in India. 
and also where our guests are coming from. Over in the east of India, people eat more rice and fish. Up north, they eat more wheat. Over in the northwest, there's a bunch of Greek and foreign food. And down south, there's a lot more rice. Somewhat like it is today, really. Quel change. What we're going to cook also depends on what time of day it is. Following one ancient plan, there are three meals in the day. You get cakes for breakfast. Then you get a main midday meal, which could be something substantial. And then you get a few sweet things in the afternoon. Nothing in the evening. That would be the sort of thing that would change quite a lot from person to person and particular period and place. Some monks, for example, they'd be forbidden from eating at all afternoon. And many people around India would only eat one meal a day. That's pretty common. A foreign visitor noticed that the Indians around him seemed to eat at any time of day they liked. So if anyone got hungry, they would eat. And that meant that they wouldn't all eat together. There wouldn't be a proper mealtime. But those Indian soldiers that he was talking about, they were soldiers on campaign. Probably when they were not on campaign and people who weren't soldiers ate rather differently. By the way, whenever we're eating, we just got to make sure that we're not eating precisely at noon or at midnight because eating then is going to give us indigestion. So what we're going to cook depends partly on where we are, partly on what time it is, but it depends most of all on who we are. For example, are you a newlywed? Are you a monk? Well, you'd better avoid salty food. Salty food excites you too much. And there are plenty of more rules like this. Go and consult your ancient Indian doctor for more details. Okay, let's get cooking. First, we want to fry the spices in some hot fat. We've got a wide range of spices up in our kitchen loft. We've got dry ginger, cumin, mustard, coriander, hot, black pepper, cloves, cardamom, turmeric. We've got long pepper too. Uh, long pepper was something which was well known in the ancient world, even in Rome. There's no onions or garlic up there, of course, but there is hing. And hing gives us something of the same zingy sort of flavour that you get from onion and garlic. Zingy but flat. It's very difficult to describe flavours. But if you've had in, in, uh, if you've had garlic or onions, or in fact hing, you'll know exactly what I mean. So we take down the spices and we're going to fry them individually in hot oil. Now, the oil could actually be ghee. Ghee's clarified butter. If you don't know what it is, stop this podcast right now. Go down to your nearest store and for goodness sake, buy some ghee. It's absolutely amazing. It's like the taste of home in a jar. But if we're not going to use ghee, we could be using other oils. Uh, mustard oil was widely used in ancient India. And so was sesame oil. And sesame oil was considered to be better quality than mustard oil, but it was probably a little bit hard to get your hands on. The oil, that will be kept up in those leather bags hung up in the kitchen. But frankly... I really love ghee, and so does everyone I know who takes it, so let's fry our spices in ghee. And then we're going to add the rice and the vegetables and the meat according to the recipe. If we're cooking meat, then we should really consider adding some sour fruit. In the modern world, you occasionally, if you're doing Indian cooking, cook meat with tamarind, which is a sort of sour fruit, I suppose. But in ancient India... Sour fruit and meat, they almost always seem to go together. And not just tamarind either. Loads of other things. 
omelette, tamarind, Bengal currants, custard apple, pretty much any sour fruit you can think of was stuffed together with meat. Now, since we've got our hand up in our fruit store, and so long as the meat dish is well underway, we might as well take some of the sweet fruit down and start to prepare it. All sorts of sweet fruit were eaten. Pomegranates seemed to be a particular favourite. Dates were also pretty popular. And then they got melons, watermelons, and pretty much everything you'd expect. By the time of the Guptas too, there were quite widespread peaches and pears. Now, according to the Chinese at least, these were introduced to India from China. And they were called Chinani and China Rajputra. Perhaps the best fruit, according to the ancient Indians, were grapes. But there's a special place in my heart for mango. Now, well before history, mangoes originally came from Southeast Asia, but they've been in India since time immemorial. So we could take a mango and mix it with camphor, cloves, and some of those flowers that we picked out from the flower stall to make a nice dish. This nice sweet mango dish, by the way, it's not exactly a dessert. It's not going to be eaten at the end of the meal. Nothing I've come across convinces me that ancient Indians had a sweet dessert course as a regular thing at the end of the meal. In fact, it seems that sweet and fatty things were the first thing eaten in a meal. And then after you've eaten the sweet stuff and the fatty stuff, you ate the salty and the acidic stuff and then the more general flavours. So if anything, this the sweet mango dish is going to be at the start of the meal. Okay, we've got several dishes ready. The rice, the meat, the vegetables. Let's go and prepare the table. Go and put out some goblets and take some water. It's actually a little bit surprising that ancient Indians use water because... People in Europe often refuse to use water, a little bit dodgy, a little bit unhygienic, and instead they would use beer. But ancient Indian used water, they just ensured that they got it from a clean place or they boiled it. And water's up in that jar hanging out by the window, the breeze going in and out of the window uh, evaporates some of the water and keeps the rest of the water cool, so take that and pour it out into the goblets. And then put out some leaves to eat on too. Maybe not banana leaves like people use nowadays, especially in South India. That became a popular only a few centuries down the road, but lotus leaves or maybe teak tree leaves. Okay, we're almost ready to eat. We take off our shoes and our headdresses. We go over to the seats. The seats aren't like cots, they're almost like proper chairs. They're raised about seven inches off the ground. They're normally made of wicker. And we sit down all in a row facing east. Side by side. Hence the title of the episode. The food is brought out to us and it's placed on low tables in front of us. Now, there are certain rules of etiquette you should know about, just in case you ever have to eat in ancient India. I mean, there are the rules of religious purity, of course. Rules that govern who can take food from who and who can eat food under what circumstances. But all of those rules properly belong in an episode on caste. I'm going to ignore them. There are other rules which are closer to rules of etiquette than rules of religion. Doubtless that distinction doesn't really appear clearly in that way in the minds of ancient Indians. So here, in any case, are the rules which I'm going to say are the rules of etiquette. Rule number one. The guests and the pregnant will eat first 
and only after that will the householder and his wife start eating. Rule number two, eat in complete silence. Actually, I'm not entirely sure if this rule was followed. There seem to be plenty of stories where people talk whilst eating and music might be played if we were rich enough to afford a musician. Rule number three, fingertips only. Never eat from your palm and never drink from cupped hands either. Rule number four, do not eat food from someone else's plate or from a dish that's been finished half by someone else. It seems that this rule was broken quite freely in parts of India, even by high caste people, even by Brahmins, but it was still a rule that was followed in some places. Rule number five, do not touch anyone else whilst you're eating. And rule number six, just leave a little bit of food left on your plate, something for the birds to have. Though, take care to eat all of the ghee, or the dahi, or the cakes, and frankly, I didn't need that last little bit of advice. The meal is finished. Could wash out our hands and our mouths too, and cleanse our teeth. Before that, to clean the palate, we might chew on some betel leaves mixed with the rind of citrus fruit. And then we sit back to relax and listen to the birds chirping in the trees. At this point, we might start to smoke. Not tobacco, of course. You'll never find an ancient Indian with a cigarette. Not least because tobacco is still in the New World, still undiscovered by any ancient Indian. The ancient Indians did smoke, though, and what they smoked were cigars of spices. Sometimes this was for medicinal purposes. Certain cigars were supposed to be thought good for the teeth and the hair. Uh, and they could put a stop to coughing and to headaches. Smoking is even supposed to be a cure for laziness, which makes you think about the whole cigarette break guy hanging around with a cigar in his mouth a bit differently. But ancient Indians also smoked for pure enjoyment, not merely for health reasons, especially when they got out of bed and especially when they'd finished a meal. So here's a non-medicinal cigar adapted from an ancient text. For goodness sake, please don't try this at home. You take some cardamom, some saffron, some sandalwood, some aloe wood, the resin of a banyan tree and its bark, the resin of a pipal tree and its bark. You take all of that and you grind it all up into a fine paste. Then you find a hollow reed. It's got to be about the thickness of a thumb and you push all of the ground up paste in there, you let the whole thing dry out, you smear it with ghee, and then you put it in your mouth, you light it up and you smoke it. There's your ancient Indian cigar. The cigars do come with a bit of a doctor's warning though. Cigars are not to be smoked by the dying, which makes a lot of sense. They are not to be smoked by eunuchs, which I don't, I don't really understand actually. They're not to be smoked by bankers. Okay. They are not to be smoked by people whose wives boss them around. No, I really don't understand that one at all. Anyway, since we're indulging in bad habits, or what the modern world considers bad habits, we might as well go the whole hog and go out for an ancient Indian drink. 
There were drinking places in ancient Indian towns. They'd been around since the time of the Mauryans, and they were around in the time of the Guptas too. If you go into town and you want to find where the tavern is, just look for the building with a flag. In fact, in big Gupta cities, you might find several different taverns in one and the same place. They'd all be in the same region of the city, but they might all not be next door to one another. So we go into the tavern and there are a whole range of ancient Indian drinks on offer. In fact, I found a drinks list from ancient India in one of my textbooks. There are various sacred drinks, but those are not to be classified with the alcohol available here. In this context, they're just not going to be on our list. So here's his list. We could have wine made from mango juices and spices. Sounds quite nice. We could have wine made from white grapes. That's imported from Afghanistan in great big jars. We could also have wine imported that's made from black grapes. Ancient Indians distinguish between the white grape and the black grape wine, but of course that's nothing like our distinction between red wine and white wine. There's something called masara, which must be barley fermented and filtered, presumably. There are a bunch of different kinds of wine. There's something here called uh, medaka. This is uh, a wine or a spirit that's made from rice mixed with spices. Meda is Sanskrit for fat, so maybe this particular drink is not going to be very good for my waistline. There's something on this list called divya which apparently is not only a woman's name, but also a liquor flavoured with the bark of pine trees. In ancient India, women drank almost as much as men. Maybe more so, in fact. Drinking was thought to be an especially womanly thing to do. Drinking was said to make a woman more charming, make their cheeks flush, make them better company. During the Gupta era, this seems to have been especially true in northern India and also in Mathura, a bit further south, perhaps influenced by the Kushans who had ruled there in years gone by. And drink was drunk pretty much all over the place. It was widely used. Even doctors seemed to be on board with it at least some of the time. Medical manuals tended to recommend that people who are about to undergo surgery drink themselves unconscious. Other medical manuals recommended that unless you're going under surgery, uh, you should be using drink in moderation, and some doctors seem to have recommended abstinence. There are some circles where there was a stern prohibition on drinking. For example, students, they were formally forbidden from having any alcohol at all. And so were Brahmins, according to some of the rule books. And then there were Buddhists and Jains, who were also required not to get intoxicated. The rule for Jains was so strict that they were forbidden from even spending a night in a place with wine jars. And there are plenty of morality tales from all the traditions about getting drunk and creating a huge problem. Some of them we've heard in this podcast. In fact, if you remember that Chinese monk who came through India and said all of them are vegetarians but he was wrong, well that very same Chinese monk who came through India said that all of the Indians don't drink and once again it seems like he was wrong. Another case of him hanging out with like-minded people too much perhaps. Because despite all opposition to it, drinking remained an integral part of the daily rituals of Gupta life. If a guest came to your house, they were to be greeted with some strong liquor. 
And when a, there was a wedding ceremony and a woman first came to her husband's house, all the women present were to be drinking. Drinking even continued to be part of life for the devout. So at Sanchi, one of the great Buddhist monuments, we get a flavour of Buddhism that's a little bit different than we get in the main texts. Maybe a flavour that's truer to the day-to-day life of Buddhist lay people. And there, away from the dusty rule books, there are plenty of scenes of people drinking. So, once again, the ancient world has the complexity and variety of the modern world. Drinking is a good time for some, a touch of medicine for others, and a deadly vice to the rest of us. Every week we read something from the original sources, and this week I thought we'd read a bit of Yu Ching. Now, Yu Jing's a Chinese Buddhist monk who's come to India. He's not the Buddhist monk we've mentioned a couple of times in this episode who got everything wrong, who said that all Indians were vegetarians and none of them drank. Uh, but he is there for the same purpose. He's going to the great university at Nalanda. He's going to translate some texts. He spends about 11 years there. Actually, a bit later than this season, it's about 100 years, maybe a bit more than the Guptas. But he gives us a really nice insight into food practices, both in the Buddhist monastery and in day-to-day life amongst ancient Indians. So we're going to read two extracts. The first extract is going to be talking about uh, food in day-to-day life. And then there's going to be a description of the meal at the monastery. And it goes like this. Among the priests and laymen in India... It is customary to distinguish between clean and unclean food. If but a mouthful of the food has been eaten, it becomes unclean, and the utensils in which the food was put are not to be used again. As soon as the meal is finished, the utensils are used, are removed, and they're piled up in one corner. All the remaining food is given to those who may legally eat it, departed spirits, birds, and the like, for it is very improper to keep the food for further use. This is the custom among both rich and poor, and is not only a custom observed by us, but even by the Brahmins. It is said in several shastras, it is to be considered mean not to use a toothwood, uh, a toothbrush effectively, and not to wash the hands after evacuation, and not to distinguish between clean and unclean food. Nor is it right to eat next morning the soup and vegetables that have been left, or to partake later of the remaining cake or fruits. At a reception or any ordinary meals, no one ought to touch another or taste any fresh food until he has rinsed his mouth with pure water. And after each course, a mouthful of which would defile him, he must repeat the rinsing. If he touch another person before rinsing his mouth, the person touched is defiled and must rinse his mouth. When a man has touched a dog, he has to purify himself. Those who have partaken of a meal must remain together on one side of the hall and should wash their hands and rinse their mouths and also wash the things used during the meal and the soiled pots. And here's the same monk describing how a meal goes down in the monastery, probably at Nalanda. It goes like this. The following is the manner of serving food. First, one or two pieces of ginger about the size of a thumb are served to every guest, as well as a spoonful or half of salt on a leaf. He who serves the salt, stretching forth his folded hands and kneeling before the head priest, mutters, Well come. He who serves the food, 
Standing before the guests whose feet are in a line, bows respectfully while holding plates, cakes and fruits in his hands. He serves them about one span away from the priest's hands. Every other utensil or food must be offered one or two inches above the guest's hands. If anything be served otherwise, the guests should not receive it. The guests begin to eat as soon as the food is served. They should not trouble themselves to wait till the food has been served all round. That they should wait till the food has been served equally all round is not a correct interpretation, nor is it according to the Buddha's instructions that one should do as one likes after a meal. Next, some gruel made of dried rice and bean soup is served with hot butter sauce as flavouring, which is to be mixed with the other food with the fingers. They, the guests, eat with the right hand, which they do not raise up higher than the middle part of the belly. Now, cakes and fruits are served, ghee, and also some sugar. If any guest feels thirsty, he drinks cold water, whether in winter or summer. The above is a brief account of the eating of priests in daily life, as well as at a reception. And that's it for this week. There's an awful lot more to say about Gupta food. I've barely scratched the surface. There's more to do as well, because I thought it might be a good idea to try and cook some of these ancient Indian recipes. And so that's exactly what I did. I cooked the very recipes we mentioned in this episode, in fact. The one we talked about going to the market and getting the ingredients and then in the kitchen actually cooked those recipes. And also the recipes we just heard from the text from Yi Jing, the one destined for the priests of Nalanda. Cooked those as well. Got a couple of friends around, a veggie and a non-veggie, to see if they were any good. You can hear that in the special episode next week. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. It's the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. There's a link to that in the description of the podcast. Have a great week. Take care.